how can we resolve conflicts without compromising our ethics and moral vision? Each year, wars are being fought in our name or with our support that citizens never get an opportunity to vote on. How can we make our voices heard? Warism, taking war for granted as morally acceptable, even morally required, is the primary obstacle to peace. This is a quote by Dwayne Cady, philosopher and emeritus professor for Hamlin University, nominee for the 1991 Gromaya World Order Award, with a festive in his honor published in 2012. Cady is best known for his works on pacifism, including his 2005 book, Moral Vision, How Everyday Life Shapes Ethical Thinking. Duane Cady, welcome to the Creative Process and One Planet podcast. Thank you. It's nice to be with you. Your book, Moral Vision, How Everyday Life Shapes Ethical Thinking, could not be more apt considering recent events that we see unfolding every day. I believe you've selected a passage that you'll share with our listeners. I'd be happy to. My general thesis in this book is that formal reasoning, and by formal reasoning I mean mathematics and science, my thesis is that formal reasoning happens within conceptual frameworks, but that it cannot prove or provide those frameworks. Metaphor, allegory, parable, narrative, and life experience all reveal constructive visions that frame and guide moral reasoning. Moral reasoning frameworks are not themselves reducible to formal reasoning, and neither are they irrational. Moral differences are not just differences given the same facts. They are differences of vision. Differences in moral vision can be described by what I call life metaphors. Uh, the, these provide a conceptual framework within which we use moral reasoning. So in the narrow formal sense of reason, namely mathematics and logic, I want to argue they themselves happen within a framework as well. They don't create the framework. If one thinks about one's own life and options within the metaphor of life as a test, the value and implications are very different from thinking within the metaphor of life as a journey. From the test metaphor, moral choices are constrained by notions of being judged possible future punishment. If you're in the moral journey metaphor, it's more likely that you're interested in moral choices that are expressive of exploration and excitement about things that are new and different. There are a great many lead metaphors, a wide variety of moral visions. So we can think about life as an organism or a market, as many do, or a gift, a machine. And then when you raise other societies, the range gets even bigger. Reason can calculate options and guides decisions consistent with these frameworks, but reason cannot tell us which framework to be in. It doesn't prove or provide our conceptual framework. Morality is rational, but not something that we could call scientific or mathematical. Over the last hundred years, philosophy has more and more modeled itself after science and mathematics, so it's gotten more technical and more narrow very different than it had been for its first couple of millennia. If ethics is to be meaningful in a pluralistic world, we need ways of thinking that can take us beyond both relativism, regarding all moral visions as equal, choice is arbitrary, and dogmatism, regarding one's moral view as superior to others and as justifiably imposed on them. The task for us is to understand how we can get moral visions and the ethics of negotiating between and among them including collisions between moral visions. My interest is in the extent to which various forms of reason take part in these different projects. I argue that contemporary technical philosophers tend to avoid this problem. They tend to think of reason as much more narrow, whereas I want to include things like ordinary experience, the arts, theater, reading a book. All those things can have effect. We could consider now with current events, experiencing moral horror even on TV or reading about it in the newspaper, have an effect on helping shape our moral vision. And so it's not necessarily a matter of narrow technical reasoning. 
So when you were writing more vision and how everyday life shapes ethical thinking, that was in 2005. In the meantime, we've had the advent of artificial intelligence, which is now embraced in all sectors of society and recommends what billions of human beings listen to, watch and read. And people have these varying facts and their isolated bubbles and, you know, the decline of the fourth estate and journalism, all these things in the last 20 years, AI as well, it's supposed to boost productivity and pioneer medical and climate breakthroughs, but it also presents clear regulatory, security, and governance dilemmas with implications for military and bioweapons. So how would you say update the book, bearing in mind these new technologies and current events today? In terms of new technologies, as soon as someone mentions artificial intelligence, I think about more than 25 years ago, when Gary Kasparov, the international champion chess player, played against the IBM computer Deep Blue, the first series Kasparov won, even though the computer he was playing could calculate more than 100 displays of the chessboard in a second. IBM went to work. And over the, fi the next year, I think the first was in 1996, the second contest was in 1997. And at that point, Deep Blue could calculate 100 different arrangements of the chessboard per second. And Kasparov lost in a very close match. And he was not a happy man. According to news reports I read, one of the ways that Deep Blue managed to beat Kasparov is they programmed into Deep Blue all of Kasparov's chess matches ever. So he was, in sense, playing himself. I think that says a lot about artificial intelligence. I'm sympathetic with Chomsky's view that artificial intelligence really isn't intelligence at all. It's a kind of theft. You just plug in enough information and certain logical techniques and algorithms, and you can generate a lot of information, but it isn't creative. It's simply reproductive of other things that already have happened. It may have some technological advantages, quick calculations for certain kinds of things. We can ask the question, are there seven consecutive sevens? in the derivation of pi, we can turn a computer loose on that and it can run for an indefinite period. And we could, I suppose, then have another computer watch and see if ever seven consecutive sevens show up. The scary part, as you suggest, is, well, I know that some of the creators of it are somewhat concerned that it could even start to make decisions that might run against decisions that we might like. Implications for the military are pretty scary. They might decide to launch nuclear weapons when a rational president might interrupt, even though all of the programmed evidence suggests this would be the time. As I say, I'm interested in reasoning that doesn't collapse into formal mathematics, logic, and empirical science. And I don't want to say everything outside of that is irrational. Yes. And given what you're saying is that it's very difficult for, we have moral visions. You know, I wish that we had one moral vision, hopefully a benign one, but we don't agree on that. So that an AI-generated military attacks or response to attacks or self-defense system could be fed with war games, could be fed with a certain point of view, and then it can be accelerated and amplified. And that seems to be the risk. We can't even decide as human beings on a single moral vision, but imagine it magnified and sped up to the point where we can't decide. I don't even just think of it as a point of nuclear attacks. That's like the most extreme end of it you've written recently about Israel-Palestine and the, the speed at which we are seeing these killings, casualties, or collateral damage, other people phrase it as. Yeah, I would say killings. In fact, I've done some research and a couple of articles published on what is called today moral injury. It's not really collapsible into post-traumatic stress disorder, a PTSD, uh, which 
is a way of describing injury that happens to soldiers. Back in World War I, they called this shell shock. So things can happen to soldiers that they then bring home with them that are often treated or tried to be treated. Well, there's another version of a kind of injury, namely moral injury. It's not PTSD and it can't be collapsed into PTSD. Moral injury arises not from what happens to soldiers, but from what soldiers do or what they witness. So if one is a soldier and witnesses children, innocent civilians being killed, being injured, that can have an effect. Or if they themselves kill or injure a child or an innocent person, that will have an effect. And then it becomes a very difficult thing to treat. Even the United States military has now begun to acknowledge moral injury as a significant aspect of war. So we need to think, of course, about the victims. At the same time, we do need to think about what this does to the killers. And it probably injures them in very serious ways connected to what we're talking about, morality. It's not clear how to treat people with that kind of injury. I find it also, as an entry point, I know that historically, say, the Vietnam protests was used of sympathy for the soldiers' risk of dying or their moral injury was a way of inviting empathy. I feel that really should be the starting of the conversation. There's a lack of equivalency in terms of, as you say, we should think about the victims and those civilians who are in the way of these events unfolding. What are your reflections on the experiences of the Palestinians today? It makes every bit of sense to condemn Hamas for the unprovoked or at least seemingly irrational attack on civilians and then the brutality with which many were treated and now many still in captivity. And that's an outrage. On the other hand, as far as I can tell from media reports, Israel has since killed nine times as many people. From what I read, about 40% of those people are children. I'm not accusing Israel of intending to kill children. Nonetheless, anyone bombing knows that between a third and half of the victims of those bombs in terms of death and injury will be children, intended or not. So if you are doing that kind of bombing, you know what the outcomes will be. And to parse this distinction by saying, well, we didn't intend, that's just collateral damage. I think that's really dishonest. Yes, Israel has a right to defend itself. It's not at all clear how completely obliterating civilians in Palestine is defense of Israel. Uh, and it doesn't seem to me to be rational to kill thousands in order to find a relative few. Uh, Hamas has done terrible things, and I can see why they ought to be perhaps arrested. But to simply start a much more wide war and bomb everything and everyone because some small subset is your target strikes me as what's being talked about in the press increasingly and even the UN as initiating war crimes. So war crimes on both sides. Yes, more times on both sides. And also, it seems like it does create that moral injury among Palestinians who might be pacifists like yourself. But when one witnesses one's family dying, one can be drawn into causes that one necessarily wouldn't necessarily be involved right. in. I lived in Ireland for many years, and you know that many of the politicians there and Sinn Féin are, you know, Sinn Féin, who's now become legitimate government, but Ireland, who had been hundreds of years under occupation, have sympathy for the Palestinians and have reached the possibility of bringing Israel to the international court. But I don't know if that will succeed. It seems like many have been lobbying for that over the years. Yes. Well, and as you know, the uh, whole situation in the history of Israel creates difficulties for us to think through. I think it's fair for Israelis 
Jewish Zionists to point to this attack as unwarranted and perhaps a kind of war crime in itself. I don't think any of that excuses what Israel has been up to since that attack. And so I can see why some people would be very upset with students at various universities basically blaming Israel for the attack from Hamas on Israeli civilians. It might be more appropriate to have some concern for all of the folks involved in this, and I think if we could pull them all, Palestinians and Israelis alike, their preference would be peace. Uh, I've had some experience in both Palestine and Israel. I was about two weeks in each of those countries when I was involved with a project trying to help Israeli and Palestinian junior high school and high school teachers write a curriculum they would use in common despite the differences of their governments. It all happened off of a coffee discussion with some of my colleagues, basically thinking, well, Sharon and Arafat, this was going to go forever. What could we do for the youngsters now? And somebody's got to think about peace in another generation. We got a number of grants from various foundations supporting the work. The State Department couldn't keep endorsing the project we were working on after transition in the administrative government. And so the work kind of screeched to a halt. And that's really a shame because there were really committed Israeli and Palestinian teachers trying to find a way to write a common curriculum that would work for civic education across all those borders. And it seems important, I mean, particularly in that region, but all around the world that we don't receive a good foundation in morals and philosophy. The humanities are being put off to one side. And even though it's contentious, people have different moral visions. But how could we introduce that more, not just into your specific program that in Israel-Palestine, but around the world? What do you think is lacking? Yeah, it's a, it's a very tricky problem. I teach philosophy. I've taught ethics and social and political thought, nonviolence, and so on for many years. A few years back, there was some kind of a scandal at Annapolis among cadets regarding exams. They somehow got hold of the exams ahead of time. They could succeed in ways that they might not have if they didn't know the exam before they took it. Annapolis couldn't just release them all, despite the academic conduct policy. So what they did was they set up a program, invited in a number of scholars and teachers to talk. I remember giving a talk and thinking it rather comic that anyone could think that an ethics lecture or two would solve this kind of issue. So you're right, there has to be some way for moral education. My own inclination is to think that Socrates may have been right. You know, teaching may not be possible. So it seems to me to be problematic to blame educators for the problems we have. On the other hand, Socrates is very quick to follow his claim. Well, teaching may not be possible, but learning certainly is. So that shifts the role of a teacher. The teacher's there to be a constructive role model around moral issues, to raise questions and encourage students to raise questions, what we call teaching. It's really about learning how to learn. Each of us has to do that more or less for ourselves. We're kind of guided by our role models. If we're lucky, we have strong role models in our families. Some people's children enter preschool knowing how to read, and others struggle with reading before they ever begin school and even when they're in school. I think the same thing can be said about morality. If our experience is with people who are amoral or maybe even immoral, then of course we'll emerge as children without much of a moral framework. We need somehow to create a context within which younger people and really all of us can get encouragement and support for moral aspirations. Toward the end of this moral vision book, I talk about this problem of relativism and dogmatism, and it seems to me those are the two most common perspectives on this problem of morality. Would there be a way to come to a universal moral position, which is kind of behind your question? And I think immediately toward people like Gandhi 
or Martin Luther King Jr., or Thich Nhat Hanh, or Jane Addams, or Cesar Chavez, James Baldwin. Interesting people, kind of moral giants in a way. And I think it, to the extent they can come up with universal moral views, it tends to be recognizing pluralism. The notion that Gandhi says, for example, that all the various religions of the world, which all are embedded with morality, he sees them as different leaves on the same tree. And so he wants to drive all of it back, and he ends up with nonviolence as an anchor. King does something similar. I don't think King is trying to impose his view of Christianity on the world. I think he's trying to suggest that saying morality is arbitrary, that everyone's right, whatever they do, or saying I'm right, everyone else is wrong, and imposing my view, both of those are simply irrational. If we're going to live long as individuals, as societies, as a world, we're going to have to figure out how to work our way past relativism and dogmatism and work our way into pluralism as a meaningful way to interact. So we have to figure out how to be more accepting of one another's perspectives and views and also question and somehow arrest these inclinations toward violence. Toward the end of the book, I try to present nonviolence as a potential universal moral that virtually everyone could agree about. Even dogmatists tend to think violence is a bad thing, and most relativists will come to agreement around nonviolence. Unfortunately, many people think nonviolence has its limits, and so they try to justify giving up on nonviolence and launching into violence at various points. And you say that warism, taking war for granted as morally acceptable or even morally required, is the primary obstacle to peace. And I agree with this, but it seems like almost revolutionary. As you say, people don't think it's possible, almost. This idea of pacifism is seen as, you know, as, as an ideal that they cannot be achieved or just, you know, you've mentioned some figures who are like considered almost perfect and the average groups or individuals can't achieve that. And at the same time, those areas that really need that approach are people who are traumatized by you know generations of trauma. So how do you approach teaching that to those or even like having them learn? As you say, I think that you made that distinction between teaching and learning. Those who are traumatized, clarity is so difficult to get. Well, you probably know from looking at some of my work, but maybe not all of your listeners would know that my approach to pacifism is to say a number of things. One is that absolute pacifism is a kind of a caricature. Even Gandhi was not an absolute pacifist, and he's the first one to tell you that. One of the ways pacifism is dismissed in most, and certainly in our culture, is that it's caricatured as a moral extreme and then simply dismissed as too idealistic. My approach to pacifism is to suggest that it happens by degrees. And I say that because that's how I found myself a pacifist. I grew up with John Wayne movies, and my dad was a World War II vet. My grandpa was a World War I vet. And in this culture, of course, the good guys wear the white hats and shoot the bad guys. You grow up with this whole sense that, of course, mor violence is justifiable morally. But if you take seriously the just war theory, what you discover is that there are moral restraints. It's only really legitimate, according to just war theory, to bomb military targets. And so as soon as you start even accepting the just war theory, you're on what I call the moral continuum between war realism, which is the view that morality has nothing to do with anything. But of course, people who believe in just war thinks no morality is relevant here. Moral restraints are needed, both on whether to go to war and then on how the war is conducted once we're in it. And so I put pacifism and morality on a spectrum along with the just war tradition. And so off the end of one end is this moral realism that says nothing matters, do whatever you want. And on the other end is this absolute pacifism which no one has managed to achieve. All of us are somewhere in between. And the trick is to figure out just where we are. Once we find out where we are, see if we can 
move a little bit toward the pacifist end. It was mainly the war in Vietnam that pushed me to back away from the just war tradition and move toward pacifism. If you put them all on one spectrum, you find something that, where they kind of overlap. If you're really stringent with your view on the moral restraints on war, you begin to realize that you can't justify war anymore. I mean, maybe you could back in the Middle Ages when you took soldiers with spears and swords and armor and you put them out in some remote battlefield and let them have at each other while the, the leaders are sitting up on a hill watching and it's like a chess match down below. You know, maybe that kind of thing could be warranted. I'm not sure. War has gotten to the point where I don't think it's possible to justify anymore. It's too big. It's too uncontrolled. We're seeing it right now. Israel might want to control those bombs, but it isn't capable of it. In World War II, even, we saw more civilian deaths than military. And there's a case where some people even call that the good war, maybe the last good war. I don't think of war as good, but I know that Tom Brokaw made quite a book out of this greatest generation. And of course, what he uses in the book is this notion of the good war. And I think no generation is any greater than any other. Each generation faces the kinds of difficulties it has, and there are more and less moral individuals within those generations, and they have more or less success at pushing their society in the direction they'd like it to go. Thich Nhat Hanh had a lot of trouble in Vietnam and ended up in France because he would have been killed very quickly and then useless. So he worked and created nonviolence training all around the world as his life work that spread this less destructive way of interacting. From my perspective, there are degrees of morality related to war, and all of us are somewhere, and right in the middle is kind of an overlap where the constraints on war are so strict by the just war theory, and then the pacifists are overlapping with someone like Martin Luther King who's saying, well, you don't all have to be absolute pacifists to join this work. Sometimes pacifism is a kind of a practical thing. If blacks in America would just rise up with weapons, they'd be crushed in no time at all. But if they would be pragmatic and adopt nonviolence as a way to demonstrate, then that might put enough pressure. And of course, back in the mid-50s, the national news in America was about a 15-minute thing. But if you can get three minutes or two minutes of Birmingham police dogs chasing down children or of Birmingham Fire Department taking high-power hoses and knocking down black children, even those on their knees praying over this demonstration, the whole country is increasingly sensitized to racial segregation. So there was at least a break in the legal side of racial segregation. I feel somewhat discouraged that in my mid-70s, I'm now to the point where, boy, I wish there, I expected there would have been much more progress, certainly around race issues, and I would have hoped around violence issues. I applied for a CEO when I was in college because I knew I was go 1A as soon as I graduated, and it was denied because I'm not a Quaker and I'm not a member of the Brethren. I can offer a paper trail of participation in what's called a peace church. Back when I was in college, whether one was drafted was up to each separate draft board in each community. And so my draft board read my letter and said, you're not a Quaker, so you're not a Mennonite, you're not a member of the Church of the Brethren, so you're not a conscientious objector. And the next-door neighbor board, where I didn't live, might have read through my application and said, oh yeah, you're a conscientious. So it seemed kind of arbitrary to me. So I went one day and went off to my physical and was thinking about options and Canada was at the top of my list. But I had a couple of surgeries when I was a youngster and so I had a pretty good scar on one of my legs. And so they thought that might not hold up too well in the trenches in Vietnam. So they, I was reclassified 1Y, which meant I could only be drafted if the U.S. would declare war. But the U.S. hasn't declared war since World War II. So 
they couldn't even make me a typist or uh, some in the back lines because they hadn't declared war. So I could go to graduate school. Well, I'm glad that uh, you were spared uh, that because uh, you can then uh, educate us on pacifism. And who knows? I, I don't think that your heart would have been in fighting that war. And so you bring up an, a number of interesting points. And certainly I feel that you mentioned race relations in America. If you apply it to Israel-Palestine, I certainly feel that by funding education programs or like having hospitals and schools and this kind of thing where the quality of life is lifted, it creates much less sympathy within even the general civilian populations towards unrest. You know, they have a quality of life. It's harder for terrorist organizations to hide among because they want to protect this quality of life that they have. But when you don't have a quality of life, of course, you want to protest. You want to change it. How do you change that mindset? You're talking about America, which has been and hasn't declared war, but has been in conflicts around the world for over 100 years, hundreds of bases all over the world. And it's global power founded on war. And the beginnings of America, slavery, which you can follow the through line to the prison industrial complex, it's like it's bound up with what America is. So how can you introduce ideas of pacifism? It's almost like the national identity. Ah, this is a huge question. Actually, when I go back to my dad's generation, World War II veteran, there's a pretty good answer to your question. And that's that after World War II, the U.S. had this, the sense to initiate the Marshall Plan and try to rebuild Germany and the areas in Europe that were destroyed, those parts of the world subjected to this kind of absolute authority of the Allies after dominating Germany and their allies on the rest of Europe. And U.S. also worked at improving its relations with Japan, despite the tensions through the Pacific War. So I think it can be done. And earlier alluded to the fact that the more destructive, the more bombing that goes on, the more civilians that are killed by Israel in Palestine, I don't think it takes any kind of rocket scientist to predict that it's creating more terrorists. Of course, they would be upset. So in some sense, the violence that they're perpetrating creates more enemies for them. By Israel going after Palestine, going after Hamas, they will create more Hamas sympathizers among Palestinians. And once we begin understanding that, we can perhaps sober up and start to initiate something more like the Marshall Plan. What if Israel really turned its effort to improving the life of Palestinians rather than trying to destroy it? What if Hamas, instead of focusing on driving Jews from the river to the sea, what if they actually tried to build some kind of sane relations. Egypt has, Jordan has, Saudi Arabia has to an extent. There's a kind of acceptance. These Arab countries united and went after Israel on more than one occasion. But over time, uneasy but workable relations have been developed. There are goods and services that transfer the border between Jordan and Israel. And that is remarkable. And Jordan actually has control over the Temple Mount. So if you want to go there, it's under Jordanian control, even though it's in Jerusalem and Technically, the piece of land that is the Temple Mount is in the boundary of Israel. Nonetheless, there's this working relationship. And so there's no reason why relations couldn't be better between Palestinians and Israelis. In fact, there are Palestinian citizens of Israel. The difficulty is Hamas managing to get control. And now, of course, this situation probably creating more folks sympathetic with Hamas. And I think that the numbers really do matter. And I was really looking for um, verified figures. One, one interruption yeah. on oh, yeah. your comment, and that's that I know exactly what you're referring to, and the numbers are quite imbalanced. To me, one can't call this current situation defense anymore. It's simply retaliation. Something as bad has happened. 
to one group of people. They are trying to respond by doing something bad to another group of people, and they're doing it by powers of 10, as far as I can tell. I'm reminded of Gandhi's remark that if you really follow this eye-for-an-eye morality, over time, the whole world is blind. This constant retaliation, it really isn't defense at all. In fact, I think some of this retaliation is because Netanyahu was being blamed early on for why did this happen? This country is supposed to have the tightest security in the world. In fact, when we were there, we were actually invited into one of the military installations on the border between Israel and the Gaza Strip. They had all kinds of infrared cameras. They could see every movement. They knew the people they were seeing by name. They would see so-and-so come out to pick vegetables in his garden. They would see his dog run through. And if they saw anything that was out of the ordinary, then they would send in one of their dogs to sort of sniff that out and find out what the relationship was. If their dog was under attack, then they would call more of an alert and consider some kind of military action. But how such a top-rated security system could allow something like this and that Hamas could get away with this was leading to a number of Israelis to ask for Netanyahu's resignation by shifting the focus to bomb. He's probably a pretty good warrior prime minister. I don't know how he is at a security prime minister, and that's where the questions arise. So it's kind of a distraction, and yet I hear less calls for Netanyahu's resignation than I did three, four, five days a week after the initial attack. Yes, exactly. And even months before the attack, because we had all those protests in, in Israel, I thought that was great that there was a movement for reform. It's evident that Dwayne Katie's work is very relevant, touching on issues that deeply resonate, especially in our world today. As a student studying at Northwestern University's Qatar campus, I see firsthand the effects of the Israel-Palestine conflict. I've seen classmates, especially Palestinian ones, directly affected with some having to abruptly leave due to escalating situations in their home country. I have observed the polarizing perspectives between the Northwestern Qatar campus and the campus in the States and the difficulties finding a universally acceptable moral vision when both campuses' opinions clash. And I don't think it's an issue of who's right, who's wrong, because conflicts where there are innocent civilians on both sides are always going to be too complex to be black and white. But what I find is that this issue really makes me question relativism, which Katie mentions he believes with dogmatism are the root issues interfering with attempts of peace. It's definitely impossible for us to find a single moral vision despite plenty of philosophers that subscribe to this notion of normative ethics where they try to find this universal framework for morality. But I think Katie and his work on pacifism really emphasizes the other extreme, which is this sort of thinking that everything is relative, everything goes because there's no real definition for ethics, is also not ideal if we want to achieve peace. It implies that in a slave culture society, slavery is fine, which would refer so much progress we've made. So it's interesting that Katie talks about pluralism instead and how essential it is for genuine peace, that everyone can coexist with their perspectives especially with recent events where Qatar is kind of stepping in as a mediator to bridge the differences between Israel and Palestine. And despite the centuries of tension between the two, the ongoing negotiations that Qatari mediators have successfully done with the extending of the ceasefire and getting both sides to release their hostages are crucial to preventing a regional war. And I think this is acknowledged by the countries in the Middle East that the threat of a wider war is a possibility they need to prevent and the pursuit of peace is something intrinsic and universal that we need to uphold. 
Further along the line, Katie draws our attention beyond geopolitical conflicts to socio-economic and environmental ones. I've always firmly believed that war is profit-driven and fueled by the want for economic prosperity and power, so it really only benefits the 1% that can receive this power at the expense of innocent civilians' lives. The military's significant carbon footprint and excessive fossil fuel consumption and waste disposal reflects a broader concern about our ecological future which is impossible to ignore as we talk about peace since a peaceful future is also a sustainable one. Katie's call for pacifism is not simply about resolving conflicts on the surface, but collectively working towards a more just, peaceful, and sustainable world. Now back to the interview. And speaking of the prison industrial complex, the legal and penal system in America, how do you think it could be changed to improve human rights conditions for prisoners and positive outcomes for education and re-entry of prisoners into society. I'm a member of the Fellowship of Reconciliation, which is the largest pacifist organization in the world. We have worked on these prison issues for many years. It seems to me the first thing that has to happen is the profit has to be taken out of it. Unfortunately, much that happens in America is profit-driven. And so the comment in my opening remarks when I was reading from the book, I think a lot of people, especially wealthier people and higher placed people in government, think of their lives and our lives as a market. And so everything is about making a profit and people are concerned about getting more and more even when they have way, way more than everyone else. The one percenters, as we call them, are still wanting more. So to your question, what do we do with the military industrial complex? I think the first thing we do is take the profit out of it. We quit franchising it out as a for-profit business and letting private corporations build prisons and then the U.S. government pays to have those prisoners held in those places. So that would be the first thing. The second, I think, would be to pursue the Supreme Court decisions back when Thurgood Marshall was there and capital punishment basically become unconstitutional in the United States because it was disproportionately being used against African-Americans. So you could take white men being convicted of a certain crime and the rate of capital punishment as a verdict for them was much, much lower than the rate for African-American men. We were just executing African-Americans at a much higher rate for the same crime. And I think the same can be said for the prison system. We have a vastly disproportionate number of African-Americans in U.S. prisons than white people. A lot of conservative white people say, well, that's because they're criminals. But I think that can be exposed by study as well. We know that blacks can get convicted of using crack cocaine at a higher rate and with greater punishment than whites will get convicted. What's that about? Well, it's about white collar people, again, back to the market, being treated in a different way than working class or unemployed or poor people. And in America, poor people are disproportionately people of color. Poor people are disproportionately in areas where the environment and environmental indifference is more prevalent. I think that's the way to approach it is take the profit out and take the bias out that we know is going on. We're seeing people putting their head in the sand. We've got Governor DeSantis, who's actually using his power as governor to preclude public schools from educating young people about the country's own history. I think it would probably be a good thing if more of us knew more about slavery, because it would make us more understanding about the plight of African-American people. Very often I hear students even, and sometimes even colleagues say, well, but these African-Americans, if they just got their act together, they just had nuclear families instead of one parent only family on welfare as far as they're concerned. It's laughable. Number one, nuclear families are a fairly recent 
invention in just the last couple of hundred years. Number two, there are not as many nuclear families among African Americans in this country because of slavery. If you take nuclear families under slavery and you sell off the spouse or the children, then they don't have a nuclear family anymore. Of course, you've created a different kind of culture for survival for folks. And if that's your history and your tradition, I've taken students a couple of six times, I guess, to Jamaica during our January term on an international development course. You go into really the top end of the third world. We work on school construction for two weeks. Uh, we have some preparation by trying to learn something about Jamaica before we go. We spend two weeks in the rural interior working on a school, and then we come back and kind of unwind and share experiences and perspectives. In Jamaica, you find a great number of single-parent households. Why? Well, another history of slavery where families were broken up. If we try to understand these things rather than just run around condemning them, will it be in a much better perspective to avoid the kind of violence? Just as you were saying earlier, if we, instead of destroying hospitals in Gaza, we were improving hospitals in Gaza, I think we'd have much better relations. Oh, definitely. And difficult for Hamas to hide wherever they're hiding and if the civilians were having to run for their Well, and if Hamas didn't have the easy target to point at and say, see how awful these Israelis are? If the Israelis were doing things that would help Palestinians, it would be much harder for Hamas to target Israelis as the enemy. Yeah, but, you know, partners in peace. And I think to that point of people have difficulty thinking about like investing in prisoners or educating prisoners, but I feel like we have to think about the outcomes, like when they re-enter society. You know, how are they going to rejoin society in a way that it doesn't continue that cycle of returning to prison? And I mean, you have yeah. to invest at some point. You have to see what kind of society do you want. One thing that has been, I'm sure that you've been troubled by it too, the uh, climate change is present on our mind. And when we see these uh, global conflicts arise, I feel like, oh gosh, it's the expense of being involved in these conflicts instead of fighting what I feel is coming for all of us. And that's the uh, inequities caused by uh, climate change and where we'll see climate refugees. And uh, so I would love to see a kind of diversion of the fund that is used for war for like you're talking about a Marshall Pan or Peace Corps that's investing in say in the U.S., a Peace Corps for the environment. I've been trying to suggest this to people, but I, I don't know if they thought it was novel, but it makes perfect sense to me. Instead of all this military and sending uh, soldiers overseas to all these hundreds of bases around the world, bringing some back home to build valuable infrastructure around the climate. Well, when you raise this issue of the relationship between the climate and the military, it reminds me of a couple of pieces that I wrote on a few years back. One piece is titled why environmentalists have to oppose war. And it's very easy to figure out. If you look at how much fossil fuel one jet aircraft burns in an hour, it's absurd. One of the statistics that sticks in my mind is that the U.S. military uses more fossil fuel in a year than the whole country of Sweden. It's just staggering. And it's not merely the consumption of fossil fuels. It's also, <clears throat> what do we do with military waste. Well, we dump it. Where do we dump it? Well, usually on poor people and usually in interesting parts of the country, Native American reservations, places that we might all otherwise want to consider protected. Well, well, we'll dig into the ground there and get rid of nuclear waste. And why do we do that? Well, we wouldn't want it near us. And I live in Twin Cities in St. Paul. And we've got a couple of active nuclear reactors in the state. One is, I can't believe it, Prairie Island, which is on an island in the Mississippi River. Well, they have to store their spent waste somewhere. Where do they do it? Well, there was a suggestion by an environmental group that they 
bury it right in front of the state capitol. The response from the government was, well, we can't do that, but it doesn't seem to be a problem to bury it somewhere else. The same is the case with all the nuclear weapons and all the nuclear waste, or even non-nuclear waste. Military sites in this country and around the world, I think the U.S. has 62 military sites in other parts of the world. I think the next highest number is four or five, and I can't remember if it's Canada, China, that has, you know, very few outposts. We leave outrageous amounts of chemical waste behind. And then how do those get cleaned up? They are very expensive, but they're also very deadly. So the environment is definitely impacted by the military. The military realizes this. We know that climate change is raising sea levels. And we're told that by uh, 2050, much of Florida will be underwater. We're going to lose quite a bit of shoreline. And so people are quite concerned. There's an airstrip in Key West that now takes some water on a surge of a storm or on particularly high tide. Well, a huge percentage of American military flyers are trained at that very airstrip. The military understands this is a problem. They're now spending billions of dollars trying to protect Cape Canaveral missile launch site because surges there threaten. One person was interviewed and said, well, why would you spend these billions of dollars to try to build barrier islands? to try to hold the surge back. And they said, well, but we've got this multi-billion dollar investment. We have to protect it. And it's just laughable. We throw more billions after billions. The environment, we know that the ocean is going to win. We're not going to build islands to keep the ocean away. Yes. And I, for me, it feels like a wasted opportunity with all of that organizational capacity and the huge budget. I just want that money and the people and the trained workforce to be building things and not destroying things. That's my wish. Well, actually, when you just for a brief interruption here, when you mention that, the military portion of our budget is immense. And sadly, you know, people are complaining. Now they're saying, well, think of all the money we're investing in sending off to Ukraine or all the money to support Israel. And people need to understand that money doesn't go to the Ukraine. It doesn't go to Israel. That money goes to United States corporations that build weapons. So we give them the money and they buy weapons from us. And the weapons go there. And right now we're probably arguably fighting proxy wars using U.S. weapons to test them out and tremendous profits to U.S. corporations. It's just staggering if you look into the amount of money that taxpayers are sending toward major U.S. corporations that build these weapons that we ship to Israel and Ukraine. So the money doesn't go abroad. The money stays here and people get rich. Americans get rich based on that tax money that is supposed to be foreign aid. Yes. You know, you mentioned, you know, in closing, you mentioned these pacifist heroes, Gandhi and Martin Luther King, and you have personal mentors and teachers. As you think about them and what they passed on to you and what perhaps sparked your moral vision, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? Ah, wonderful question. I guess this might seem like an odd answer. I think what I would like young people to go away with is the importance that each of us really creates ourselves and our challenge is to be the best human being we can be. Sometimes it's a role model. Sometimes it's a teacher that we admire or a family member. Sometimes it's a book we read or some history that we studied. But those things make an impression on us. And then if we take responsibility for those things ourselves and realize that we have choices to make, we have responsibilities to bear, we can't just dismiss this as somebody else's problem. 
then I think it will create the kind of world we would like to see. I've got enough belief, not that humans are basically good, but I don't think humans are basically evil either. I think humans are basically open books and they can go any of a number of directions. And our effort has to be to encourage the right sorts of questions and try to help them make the way rather than throw up a lot of obstacles, push them into the military and the kinds of negative things we might do for them. So what are your reflections on the importance of the humanities and the liberal arts? The liberal arts literally are the skills that free us. So I think that the importance of the liberal arts and the humanities would be for us not to be dependent on others, but to be free. That's one of the reasons that it was illegal to teach slaves to read, because if they read, they would be more free than if they were trapped in the institution of slavery. So I think freedom, and Americans, people around the world talk about freedom all the time. I think our freedom depends on the liberal arts, about learning about music, learning about mathematics, learning about history, the kinds of things that we need that are not going to turn into a market job, at least not immediately. We can't graduate in liberal arts and expect to be moving up the way an MBA student might. But I think in the long run, maybe even not so long, as employers understand is they need people who can think, people who can read and write, people who are articulate when it comes to speaking. And all of those things come out of a liberal arts education. And I think also the humanities generally are well named because they do, in fact, humanize us. Once we see the rich literature, artwork, theater, and so on of generations, it gives us a much deeper perspective on who we might be, how we might put our freedom to use. I definitely believe the humanities are the glue that keeps society together and they introduce also, as well as critical thinking, a sense of joy for us to achieve our difficult tasks. I remember reading a few years ago, two comments, one that somewhere out in California, might have been Stanford, president of Sony was giving a commencement address. And among other things, he said that one of the differences between the United States and Japan was that in Japan, they produced 10 engineers for every lawyer. But in the United States, they produced 10 lawyers for every engineer, which I think is an interesting observation. And in a different talk, someone else reported that the American century really depended on well-educated people coming out of the liberal arts. And apparently there were people high in the Chinese government who thought, you know, it's not this narrow technical education that can explain the American century. It's rather the creativity that comes out of a liberal arts education. And so there was some impetus to redesign the Chinese educational system with more emphasis on the liberal arts because of the creativity that comes out of that. And meanwhile, the U.S. is going back to a more economically oriented, more technically oriented. So I think that's rather unfortunate. But I think it's an interesting insight that the liberal arts not only have this freeing and creating and enriching in the cultural sense for all of us, they have a kind of explanatory power in understanding how some even nations can thrive. And it turns out not to be the MBA and the engineering degree. It turns out it may well be the liberal arts. Well, I think it's important, most of all, for those conversations that allows that interdisciplinary thinking. Yes, it's a wonderful foundation. We need all these voices, but I think those that create and don't destroy. I think that when young people are exposed at a young age or they have wonderful teachers such as yourself and are given love and kindness and patience, teaching that is towards uh, positive ends, that we can do anything and it's really possible to imagine a better tomorrow. So thank you, uh, Dwayne Katie, for sharing your humanistic thinking and your important insights into 
into moral education, warism and passivism and ethical thinking. By helping us understand what we value, we can consider possible outcomes and what we should do to ensure a positive future. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. You're welcome. It was wonderful to be with you. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Yamishovsky Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interview producers on this episode were Sophie Garnier and Nadia Lam. One Planet Podcast is produced by Mia Funk. Additional production support by Katie Foster. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.